community-based solutions are the best solutions because they are long-term and they will be the only thing that is permanent. So if you look at what Oakland is doing, so many different community groups are coming together. And by community groups, I mean like Asian American community groups, black African American community groups, um, Latinx community groups, like, you know, coalitions for the homeless, all of these groups are coming together um, to try to build safer spaces and awareness because it's our marginality that pits people against each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today I'm going to be speaking with Mei Li Chai, a professor and writer. We're going to be talking about the scourge of anti-Asian violence that seems to be sweeping the country right now, at least certain pockets of it, and how it's been building up for quite some time. Now, as an Asian American, I've always kept an eye on anti-Asian sentiment, uh, but this anti-Asian sentiment has really been exacerbated over the course of the last year uh, by the actions of former President Donald Trump, who has taken every opportunity he can to remind people that the coronavirus, the COVID-19 virus, uh, came from China. Uh, and he's called it the Chinese virus, the China virus. Uh, and he did this in order to give his base a convenient political enemy, to gin up his base, to gin up support, and uh, to target people with it. And as with many things, as with all things that he did, he didn't really care who would get hurt by it. I've always been afraid of uh, the possibility uh, that widespread anti-Asian violence would occur. There are 400,000 people dead, over 400,000 people dead as a result of the coronavirus, millions of people out of their jobs. And uh, people in these circumstances often like to look for someone to blame and someone to hurt as a result of that blame. And I feel like that day is starting to arrive and we're starting to see it with these incidents of violence. Um, Meili Chai actually documented many of these incidents on her Twitter account in a viral tw Twitter thread that I'll link to in the show notes. It's what caught my attention and uh, it's what made me invite her to be a guest on this episode of the podcast. So I really am grateful for the fact that she decided to stop by and talk with me about this important topic. I hope you listen. I hope you take it seriously. It's certainly something that's on my mind right now. Before we get to our conversation, I want to mention, of course, that you can find more episodes of this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. If you are enjoying the podcast, you want to support this podcast, there's a couple really easy ways to do that. First of all, follow this podcast on Twitter. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W at C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. You can also leave a review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that really does help us to stand out. And of course, you can always contribute monetarily to this show at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Thanks to all my patrons for making this podcast possible. All right, let's get to my conversation with Meili Chai, who is an associate professor of creative writing at San Francisco State University. Her work has appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle, The Rumpus, and the Dallas Morning News. She's the author of 10 books, including Tiger Girl and Hoppa Girl, and her newest book is Useful Phrases for Immigrants, a collection of short stories that's available right now wherever books are sold. I'd recommend you check it out. We talk a little bit about it during the interview. Uh, here is my conversation with Mei Li Chai, and stick around afterwards for our weekly recommendations. Mei Li Chai, thanks so much for joining me today on Culturally Relevant. How are you doing today? All right. Thank you so much, David. It's great to have you on. So, Mei Li, the other day, 
you made a viral Twitter thread documenting instances of anti-Asian violence around the country. And I thought, let's start with this. What motivated you to make this thread? You know, um, a number of things. One, just within the Asian American community, this is something that has we've been discussing and having to deal with for quite some time, and certainly since March. And I know um, many Asian American seniors, including my father, who is 88 years old and has been sheltering in place with me, um, this has been a source of tremendous, tremendous anxiety. What surprised me is that a lot of people outside of the community apparently didn't know. And I discovered this when a friend who lives in the Bay Area, but who is um, not Asian, had messaged me and she was very upset. And she said, oh, did you know this was happening? Did you know? And it was about the uh, death of the 84-year-old Thai grandfather who was um, shoved and then ultimately killed in San Francisco. And I told her, yes, of course I knew. And then I realized oh my goodness, people don't know. And that's when I, I started, I've got to write something. This is what I do. So I tried to, I was going to write an essay about this. And then I just thought, no, this is really urgent. This has been increasing. These attacks are getting more violent. They're, they've been going on since March. When does this end? We need help. And that's when I started the Twitter thread. And I wanted to put in the historical context because um, I felt like the media always treats these types of outbursts of racist violence as a one-off. And mm -hmm. I wanted to bring in the context that, no, every time there's a conflict with Asia, in Asia, it falls upon the bodies of Asian Americans in the U.S. Mm. Yeah, your thread begins, uh, quote, attacks against Asian Americans is as old as America itself, but the sheer volume and number have gone up astronomically since the COVID pandemic. Uh, here is a few examples. Uh, and then you go on to list like the example of this 84 year old man who is, uh, who was killed in San Francisco and, uh, robberies as well as other, uh, attacks, many of which are caught on tape in these horrifying videos, like security cam footage. Uh, and yeah, you, you said you have an 88 year old father. Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. And you know, my parents, uh, are getting up in years as well. And whenever I see, these videos, I can't help but wonder like, oh, like I like what if that was like my mom or dad there? I, I feel sick, you know, whenever I see these videos um, and uh, it creates like a visceral reaction to me because like these people are just like walking. These people are not like doing anything. Or any, yeah, they're not doing it. They're just walking down the street and then just randomly assaulted. Right. There have been these types of attacks since the very beginning. And um, there's and it's from people of all races across the United States doing this. I mean, in San Francisco, very early, there were white women coming up to Asian American women who were just going for a walk in a park. And they've been yelled at and assaulted and called names and followed. And then um, with seniors, it's getting worse because they're so vulnerable. All it takes is one push and, you know, uh, a senior can die, as we've seen. And so with my father, he can't walk by himself. I have to be at his side and I have been at his side for months now. And it's it causes anxiety. It's constrained his movements. It's, you know, it's hard on the health. Um, there is a true, genuine negative impact on the health and well-being of the Asian American community because of these attacks. So tell us a little bit about how we got here, 
I mean, uh, just in terms of the pandemic, there's a lot to talk about there. I think you also have thoughts about how this goes back even farther uh, than the pandemic's beginning, right? Like further back oh. in, in American history. But oh yes, let's let's start with the pandemic and kind of what has been your perception of what led us to this point. Well, first we have, of course, former President Trump blaming the pandemic on um, China and Chinese, which then gets extended to all Asians. Um, so he, his refusal to call this the COVID-19 virus and instead calling it the China virus, even in his tweets, even after he lost the election, he was still insisting calling it the China virus. Um, even after reporters have told him to his face that this is causing violence and harm to Asian Americans, he still calls it the China virus or they or horribly in a very childish way, the Kung flu. Um, and so we saw the immediate reactions, um, Asian American reporters who were at press conferences were being told behind the scenes, you know, oh, it's the Kung flu. And they have tried to report this. Um, Asian American reporters have spoken up when while out in reporting, people would attack them or um, call them names because they were seen as being conveyors of, of COVID. So we have that at the highest office of the United States government. And when that happens at the highest office with the, you know, the person who has the biggest platform on earth, then you start seeing this message becoming an earworm and getting in the heads of everyone who has heard this. And so whether they consciously or unconsciously have absorbed this message that Asians are responsible, we see people acting on it. Yeah, and we should point out that in general, there are best practices for disease names, and uh, you are not supposed to use locations and disease names or nationalities and disease names. Um, uh, the, the WHO, for instance, says do not use geographic locations uh, or anything that would identify a specific uh, culture or population uh, just f for this specific reason, because we shouldn't allow uh, a pandemic or a virus to be used for political purposes. And that's exactly what's happened here. And what we see is this goes back to the deepest fears that the United States government has had about Asian immigration. Um, you know, the term yellow peril is a term that's been used throughout um, American history. And it was actually one of the excuses for the first, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, and then the Oriental Exclusion Act of 1888, in which um, potential immigrants from Asian countries were barred um, from admittance to the United States as immigrants. And just very, very few were allowed in. And it's because Asian bodies were seen as being uniquely diseased and uniquely able to transmit um, disease within the United States, which is false. We know, as we should know in the present through science, that a virus will, will infect all human bodies. If it can infect one human body, it can infect all of us. That's why we have a pandemic. That's why we have a global pandemic. Um, but it goes back to these racist fears of immigration and to white supremacy and to white supremacist policies. Um, so, um, you know, and, you, and also into imperialism, if you look at why the U.S. justified colonialism and wars in Asia, it was because it was seen, Asian countries were seen as diseased and inferior. China was called the sick man of Asia. Um, and this is, you know, led to, for example, in 1900, the U.S. joined with seven other nations and bombed China. 
people forget about this. And then after they bombed China, they carved China up into spheres of influence. Uh, influence and Western countries and Japan, an alliance with Western countries, took over parts of China, extracted the resources for themselves, um, and damaged China's ability to function economically and politically and culturally. But we don't take responsibility for that. Instead, it's seen as, oh, this is China's fault because they're the sick man of Asia. And then you think that this is long, old, gone, and, you know, something from the distant past. And then when it comes roaring back to life in 2020 with, you know, the China virus and this blame for the pandemic and the violence against Asian Americans, we realize that, you know, unless we address these historical wrongs, we are doomed to repeat them. Yeah. Uh, Let me talk a little bit about my upbringing and and political evolution. And I'd love to hear about how you've perceived this last year, like on a on a personal level. But, you know, when I was growing up, my parents uh, owned and operated a Chinese restaurant. You know, they they were entrepreneurs. And I really very much bought into this whole model minority myth, this idea that like, oh, um, Asian people are able to do this without uh without any special handouts or any consideration like all other races should just like you know get in line and and do what they need to do this is when i was like young you know middle school high school growing up you know and and didn't know any better and you know as i went to college and became a more educated person uh it it began to be clear to me that the model minority myth is something that's deployed by uh political parties to uh in short kind of keep races uh from like like fighting against each other right to to make sure that they like uh they there's like discontentment in the ranks there and i never felt that more acutely than this last year when um basically republicans threw asian americans under the bus for political purposes right and there's this idea that uh, you know, Asian Americans are w- will welcome them when they can be useful politically, but the moment it becomes more useful to see them as the other, as an invading force, as something as something that is going to harm us, um, to gin up kind of this xenophobic support uh, for the president, then that is when we will be thrown under the bus. That's when um, we will be kind of uh, made the targets of these attacks. And I guess I wanted to ask you, like, uh, on a personal level, on a personal level, what has been your experience as an Asian American getting through this last year? Uh, At a personal level, I've had to make four reports to stop AAPI hate because there's been four separate attacks and always by white people. I'm in San Francisco. Um, in one instance, it, horribly enough, it was one of my neighbors in my building, and uh, my father and I were in the lobby, and my father tried to talk to this man. We've, we've talked to him in the past, and um, my father was talking about the virus, and the man said, you know, he was very angry. He says, it's a hoax, and he went into the elevator, and then he looked at us and said, commies, and the elevator door shut, and I was, and I was just shocked and horrified that somebody we knew and had been friendly with in the past could turn that quickly. Mm. Um, and so this, this past year I've had to be very cautious. Now I 
you know, I'm always at my father's side because you never know when somebody's going to have this, you know, emergence of rage within them and, you know, try to take it out on us. So that's been like the personal pain of this of this year with the virus. And I just want to say you did you gave a fantastic and succinct um, explanation of the model minority myth. It absolutely was created in order to silence Asian Americans, to divide and therefore conquer um, different minority groups, different people of color in the United States to keep us from forming alliances. And this came out of the civil rights movement when Chinese Americans, that was the largest group at that time, but and other Asian Americans were allied with African Americans and with the Chicanx movement um, in a fight for civil rights. Um, my own family, my father's family came to America a little bit earlier. Um, my father came in 1950 and his, he managed to find a sponsor for his parents and younger brothers in 1955. And so they came in an era um, in which Chinese immigration was greatly curtailed to about 105 people per year. And you had to have a sponsor to come. And they came as refugees um, after World War II, after the, um, the Chinese Communist Revolution. So they experienced, um, they experienced life in America before the model minority myth had been promulgated by the media. So, for example, my grandmother was a Christian. And um, in New York City, they lived in New York City. When she tried to go to the local Christian church in her neighborhood, the white pastor just told her, no, you shouldn't go here. Go to Chinatown. But the problem was that my grandmother didn't speak China, uh, Cantonese. She spoke Mandarin. And the services in those days in the Christian churches in Chinatown were in Cantonese, where she, whereas she could understand English. So they had to experience this, you know, to their face. Um, and then, so I've seen waves of this. When I remember when Trump was running for president in uh, first running in 2016, they're just the level of disgusting overt xenophobic hate speech that he said and then which the media just widely repeated without commentary without pointing out that this hate speech it reminded me of the 1980s uh, my family had moved and we were living in rural south dakota in the 1980s and i remember what it was like when the media was constantly harping on the economic rise of japan and how competition from japanese automakers was hurting you know, Detroit and American automobile manufacturers. In those days, white men would drive by our house and shoot at our house. Our dogs were shot and killed and left for us to find um, on our lawn. Um, and, you know, we would they, call they literally fired like guns at your yes, house. Yes. And it, once in the middle of the night, and I, I remember my mother, like we were terrified and she called the sheriff's department and his response, the sheriff, whoever answered, said, oh, what do you want us to do about it? I mean, there was just no um, response from law enforcement, and um, it was a nightmare. So I have lived through waves of this. I remember when in the 90s, there were all these attacks on Chinese Americans who were trying to get politically involved, and they were saying that we were spies. Remember, remember poor Wen Ho Lee? Yeah. You know, yeah. front page of the New York Times, they were claiming he was a spy and that black-clad ninjas were going to come from helicopters on ropes and try to break him out of prison. Well, the New York Times had to issue an apology. You know, the federal inquiry showed that he was not a spy. Um, and then after 9-11, who got attacked? South Asian Americans, the first person to be killed after the attacks of 9-11 in a hate crime was a Sikh American man in Arizona. 
And um, so I've seen, I've lived through subsequent waves of this. So when this was happening after the pandemic, all I could think was, oh no, here we go again. And attempts to reach out to the media, you know, to write letters to the editor, to write op-eds, to just write to the people who have power in the media, to ask them to stop repeating this trope were unanswered. This this trope being what specifically, Maylie? The China virus, yeah. um, the China virus, the Kung flu, blaming Asians for the, the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, I think the trend that I hear, and first of all, let me just start by saying, I'm, I'm very sorry you had to go through all that. I mean, that sounds awful. And uh, I have experienced some prejudice and discrimination in my life, but like nothing is bad or as serious as what you described. So thank you for sharing that. And no one should have to go through that. Uh, the the trend when I hear you talk about your experiences and when I reflect on my own experiences is this idea of um, being American. And I think when growing up, you know, I believed in the mythology of America, this idea that anyone can be an American. That's what makes America beautiful. You know, the idea of the melting pot and um, we all together form something that's greater than the sum of our parts. And as I've grown older and seen what's happened in the last few years, it just has become more clear that like for many people in this country, they will never see us as American. You know, they will never see Asian Americans as American. Um, and they are very glad to jettison our Americanness when it serves their political purposes. But it has been heartbreaking for me to kind of think about, you know, the idea that like there's just a huge portion of people that will always see me as other. And it's because of something I can't control, you know, which is how I look, color of my skin, you know. Uh, how, how do you feel about that when I say that? Does that resonate with you or? Oh, it yeah. does. I mean, this is one of the tropes of being Asian American um, is that we're eternal foreigners in our own country. It just like goes when people ask us, oh, where are you from? And I say, I'm from California or, well, you know, or, um, <laughs> and then they say, where, no, like, where are you from? And you keep saying that. And you're like, I'm from San Francisco. And they say, where are you from? And I'm like, what are you asking me? And what they really mean is like, where in Asia are you from? And yeah. it doesn't matter how many generations we have been here. Yeah. And the, the issue is like, you know, it seems benign on the surface, but it isn't because it means that any moment our Americanness can be questioned and we can be seen not just as foreigners, but as invaders. And it also shows that we don't ever get credit um, for contributing to American society. Yeah. And I think it is heartbreaking, but at the same time, it's it's ubiquitous. And so I think that, um, and we have contributed, right? We have contributed to American society. And I think one of the things to recognize is that America is a stronger and beautiful na more, you know, nation today because of the contributions of all of our different groups, right? We wouldn't be able to survive and exist and thrive as a nation without the contributions of all of us and all of our different groups. And I would just like to see some recognition of that. And especially in, I would say, like the mainstream media, because we all have, we, there's a lot of ethnic media that covers this, right? And in our own groups, we cover this. I listened to your wonderful um, episode where you interviewed author Charles Yu, and he's talking about this um, lack of representation in his novel, Interior Chinatown. We're always the bit players. And when you're a bit player, you don't get credit <laughs> for contributing to the larger society. Um, and I would like Hollywood to start recognizing us 
as Americans, I would like newspapers, mainstream newspapers and cable news networks to start rep representing us, start covering us as important parts of the society. You know, when people attack us, they should be alarmed because, you know, Americans are being attacked. Yeah. Uh, by the way, this mild tangent before we move on, but there was a piece published just this morning uh, called A Vision of Asian American Cinema That Questions the Very Premise. This is in the New York Times uh, by um, Brandon Yu. And he interviewed a bunch of Asian American filmmakers. And there was a quote from this that really struck me this morning. Uh, it's by, I think it's Lee Isaac Chung that gave this quote. And uh, he's the person that directed Minari. Uh, which is a new movie that's coming out that's really uh, worth watching. And Chung says, quote, I had this Q&A with Sandra Oh, and Sandra was articulating that she found her own experience deeply isolating. It's it's not just an isolation that happens between us and society that tells us we're foreigners often. It's like an isolation that happens within our own families where we don't understand our parents very well and they don't understand us. So we're all just trying to grasp and figure out our place in this country where often what we're told is what we're told is your place is not having a place that kind of becomes our identity. There's nothing for us to really conform to. Uh, and maybe that's why this conversation has to feel like that as well. There's an existential process to this whole thing, end quote. Uh, and I really appreciate that. I don't know what your relationship with your, uh, your parents was like, uh, but I certainly felt that in the sense that like my parents were very much from Taiwan and they very much wanted us to adhere to kind of the old ways of doing things. And uh, we were, my brother and I who grew up in America were very much not like that. Uh, what was your experience growing up? You know, I love that quote that you said, our place is not having a place. <laughs> yeah. And I think that it's part about living in diaspora because our experiences of each generation will be so different. Um, and, you know, my father's family was displaced because of war. My mother was white. Um, so I'm different from both of my parents. Um, and, you know, my father's experience is different from his parents experience, you know, my grandfather was born when my grandfather was born, China still had an emperor. <laughs> so he lived through, you know, you think about he lived through the imperial age, then the revolutionary age where there were warlords, and he lived through the era of constant warfare when Japan invaded, then they lived through the Civil War, and then they had to flee, and then they went to Taiwan, and then they came to New York City. I mean, just think of this disruption, the disruption that they had to deal with. And then that led to a lot of PTSD. So I know when I was young and, in, you know, in elementary school, I remember asking my father about, you know, the war in China. They're, the textbooks, if they, they represented it with like one paragraph, you know, and it said that, um, you know, the leader of China was Chiang Kai-shek and then the revolutionaries were Chairman Mao. And so I asked my father, which side were you on? And, you know, Chiang Kai-shek or Mao? And he said, um, we just followed our warlord. We just followed our warlord. And he just wouldn't talk about it anymore. And so actually, I did a lot of research. My way of dealing with this was to study intensively to try to understand where my family fits in, what the larger history is. Um, I studied Chinese in college. I went to live in China in my father and grandparents' hometown of Nanjing. I studied at Nanjing University. I also studied in Taiwan. Um, I've lived and worked in Hong Kong, trying to understand where do our individual stories fit into this larger um, kind of global story. And in, in studying that, did you find anything that was particularly illuminating about your own history and how you came to be the way you are? 
Well, I mean, yes, you could see it from my Twitter thread. I've got a lot of history in there. And that comes from all the studying of just seeing how every subsequent wave of Chinese and Asian immigrants are both attacked and then erased. And I felt like that erasure and that history of the erasure and the history of the attacks was helpful for me in understanding why why we don't know more, right? Why, um, you know, we don't have a place yet, like we're not seen as having a place because every time a group carves out a place, an Asian group carves out a place in American history, it gets erased. And then we have to, it feels like we're starting over from scratch. Can you give an example of what you mean when you say erased? I, well, I think for, I understand, but I just want to make sure like people know what you're talking about. Sure. I can, um, let's just think the most common, like the most well-known example of Asians in America is probably still the Chinese railroad workers, right? The Chinese railroad, you know, more than a hundred thousand Chinese came and they were employed on the railroad. And then when the commemorative photo was taken, you know, the golden spike photograph that Leland Stanford paid for at Promontory Point in Utah to, you know, show the shaking of the hands. The two sides of the road have joined, joining east and west. The Chinese were not photographed. Um, they were told to go have lunch, the workers who were there, and it was only white people in that photograph. Um, so literally erased from the historical record of the most famous example of Chinese in America. Now, interestingly enough, there was an Asian American photographer, Corky Lee. I, um, you may have known him. So many of us knew him. And he just recently died a few weeks ago of COVID in New York City. He had this brilliant idea to restage the photograph of the golden spike. And so he gathered together the descendants of the Chinese railroad workers and he brought them at Utah and he retook this photograph and he put, you know, where there had been, you know, white men, you know, in their, in their 19th century garb, he put the descendants and the Chinese Americans and he took this historical photograph. So I think that's a, that's an example of the erasure. Mm. Uh, so let's get back to the topic of uh, anti-Asian violence in, in America today. And I guess I wanted to ask you about uh, what you think are some of the, like, the ideal outcomes you'd like to see from this. One of the things you talked about is uh, coverage of these things. What do you find lacking in the current coverage of these events? And what is the ideal, in your opinion? I think what's lacking is the one-off quality. Um, like, okay, now we've managed to get attention. So people are saying, oh, look, there was this huge outbreak of violence around Lunar New Year. It's like, well, no, it's been ongoing for a year. Um, but at least there was some national coverage. And what I hope doesn't happen is that, that now everyone feels, oh, yeah, that was covered. It's done. It's over. And there's no follow-up coverage, right? There needs to be continuous mm -hmm. coverage of Asian American communities. Now, not just in relation to COVID violence, but just in general. I mean, when they talk about the pandemic on CNN, do they talk about how it's impacting Asian Americans? Um, often not. I mean, we've been left out of the statistical breakdown of, you know, people who've lost jobs. I was recently, I recently read an article and it shocked me that said that Asian American women have been the, the group most impacted by unemployment during COVID. But I, apart from that one article, I'm not seeing that. So I would hope that, that what comes out of this horrible moment 
is just a recognition, hey, Asians are part of America and their news of their communities should be part of the larger news cycle. Uh, you know, we just come out of a year where there's been a reckoning with how our communities deploy police resources. And uh, often in these situations where we see this anti-Asian violence, like there's a, there's a desire for more policing to happen. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on like beyond the coverage, what some solutions are for this anti-Asian violence. Sure. Um, Community-based solutions are the best solutions because they're long-term and they will be the only thing that is permanent. So if you look at what Oakland is doing, so many different community groups are coming together. And by community groups, I mean like Asian American community groups, Black, African American community groups, um, Latinx community groups, like, you know, coalitions for the homeless. All of these groups are coming together um, to try to build safer spaces and awareness because it's our marginality that pits people against each other. And like the police are already well-funded all across the United States. I mean, as an educator, I mean, it would be really nice to see that level of commitment to funding for our public schools, for example. Um, and so, but we still have this violence even with this good funding. So, you know, they say the definition of insanity is, um, continually doing the same thing, but expecting a different outcome. So just throwing more money at the police isn't going to resolve this issue because it's still ongoing. So I think listening to what communities say they need and providing funding to those groups who were doing that hard work and providing resources for marginalized groups, whether it's communication, whether it's anything like housing, food, um, and also safety issues, right? If we get to know each other better, it's harder to, it's harder to attack people. Although as with my neighbor, I mean, sometimes we know each other and we're still attacked. Um, but I feel like that's the only long-term solution. Yeah. One thing I've seen that I think is interesting is, uh, kind of community groups who's, who consider their job to help provide security by like walking, uh, elderly people from place yes. to place, right? Um, yes. Which seem, seems like a very effective, non-vigil anti way to do it, you know? Um, so that's been wonderful to see as well. And then keeping your eyes open, um, like, you know, one of the reasons why Asian seniors have been targeted is because um, they're perceived as being very vulnerable. And so if we're all aware, hey, this is a vulnerable group, you know, and just when we see an Asian senior or any senior, right, keep our eyes open and speak up and act if we see someone threatening them. We can all be helpful. I want to talk briefly about your book, uh, Useful Phrases for Immigrants, which is a series of short stories told from different perspectives. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. I found a lot of elements of my own upbringing in several of the stories that you wrote. What inspired you to write uh, Useful Phrases for Immigrants? You know, um, it, it's so funny. Um, I put this collection together um, starting in the presidential primary of 2016. I was so alarmed by the really overtly xenophobic um, language of a certain New York real estate developer um, that I thought, you know, I've, what can I do to counter this? And so, you know, I'm a creative writer. So I started seeing what stories I had, what I've been working on, and I started putting them together to try to um, just to provide a human face to Chinese 
people and Chinese people in diaspora because I knew I didn't realize just how bad it would get, but I knew it was bad. And so that's where the, that was the origins of this collection. Why, why did you know it was bad? I'm just curious. Because like, in, I mean, I think in 2016, I was certainly gripped by some fear, but uh, I don't know that I, I would describe it as exactly what you said just now. Why, why did you know it was bad? Because I've lived through it before, um, because I was living in North Carolina and I was teaching in North Carolina at the time. So I felt, you know, very hyper visible and kind of alone. And I could see how the media was just repeating Trump's hate speech. You know, China is raping us. Mexicans are rapists. And they would just broadcast that. And you tell you, oh, this is mm. something he said without saying this is something false and terrible. And this is hate speech. Right. Well, I had lived through the 80s. And I, you know, lived through the media talking about J Japanese this way. I remember the Des Moines Register ran this column that called Japanese. Um, they said the Japanese rise of Japan, Japan's economy was a new economic Pearl Harbor for the United States. Um, I remember there was a cover of a national magazine which showed a sumo wrestler straddling Rockefeller Center because a Japanese conglomerate had bought the real estate. I remember pictures of the Statue of Liberty made up to look like a geisha because, it, you know, we were seen as this Japanese invasion on the United States. And I remember when Vincent Chun, a 27-year-old Chinese-American, was beaten to death by two um, white Detroit auto workers. And they blamed him for losses in their industry. And even though they were, there were witnesses, I mean, they didn't hide this. They killed him in plain sight and with a baseball bat, beat his skull in, they were convicted and neither of them was sentenced to spend a single night in prison. Um, they were instead fined roughly $3,000 a piece. So, you know, I have lived through this before. So when this started happening again in 2016, I knew, I knew this was going yeah, to be you, bad. You saw, you've seen this movie before and 2016 felt like the act one or prologue at least. Well, Meili Chai, we're really uh, grateful to be able to have your uh, your wisdom to help us to spot the warning signs. You know, I bet some people who are listening to this might be wondering, like, is there anything they can do to help in this situation? And I, and I, I assume people have asked you this question as well. Like, what do you tell them when they ask the question? Like, okay, I recognize this is a huge problem. Like, what can I do to help? I am but a lowly non-Asian person. You know, what can I do to help in this situation? There's a number of things that, you know, would be really helpful from allies. One is whenever you see the media either erasing Asian Americans or presenting us as foreigners, you know, as not part of America or repeating hate speech to speak up, either write a letter to the editor, write a comment. Um, if you, you know, in a conversation, um, in a classroom or in a workplace, if somebody makes this type of remark, don't stay silent. You know, one can speak up if out on the street, you know. You see acts of um, violence or harassment or um, you know, anything like that, you know, also speak up, uh, know that this is happening. Um, we need our allies now more than ever. Um, so speaking up and being there for us is, is much appreciated. I also saw this article on Huffington Post the other day uh, about like things you can do. I thought that was pretty good. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But thank you all out there if you are allies and wanting to help with the situation. And thank you, Mei Li, for joining me today. Mei Li Chai is an associate professor of creative writing at San Francisco State University. 
Her work has appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle, The Rumpus, and the Dallas Morning News. She's also the author of Useful Phrases for Immigrants, a collection of short stories that you can buy right now. Meili Chai, thanks for joining me today on Culturally Relevant. Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much for bringing attention to this issue. Welcome to Weekly Recommendations, the part of the show each week where I recommend something I've been listening to, watching, reading, etc. This week, I want to recommend that article I mentioned during the interview. Uh, It's entitled, A Vision of Asian American Cinema That Questions the Very Premise. It's by Brandon Yu, uh, and he interviews a bunch of Asian American filmmakers, Lulu Wong, Lee Isaac Chung, Bing Liu, Alan Yang, Justin Chan, Sandy Tan, and Mira Nair. Uh, and talks with them about the movies they make and the Asian American experience. It's wonderful. Check it out. Uh, It just speaks so much to my own experiences of being an Asian American, especially one who's into film. Anyway, here is what Meili Chai recommended for her weekly recommendation. Oh, I wanted to think of something happy and um, cheerful that could, you know, lift all of our spirits. And so I was thinking of this delightful essay collection, World of Wonders, by the poet and essayist Amy Nezhuku Matatil. Um, It's just a delightful series of very short essays about nature and her love of nature and um, her experiences as a South Asian and Filipino girl growing up in the United States. And it is truly a delight. It's beautiful, it's short. Each essay is short and you can, if you're just really stressed out, you can just read one at a time. It's like, you know, they're just the most delightful little uh, petit four, kind of um, essays that enlighten me, tell me something about the natural world and are just filled with beautiful language. All right. That's World of Wonders in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments. Thanks for sharing that, Meili Chai. Thanks again to Meili Chai for sharing her weekly recommendation and for joining me on this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening. This episode of the podcast was edited and produced by me, David Chen. It was powered by Simplecast at simplecast.com. Check them out if you're looking for a great solution for podcast management and analytics. Uh, If you want to support this podcast, leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or share this podcast on your social medias. And also, uh, you can also follow this podcast on Twitter at CREVSHOW. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.